Jai Guru Dev everyone. Today we will continue reading My Life, Its Legacy and Message. Chapter 5 Second Round of Pilgrimage and Projection of the Field of Work A period of about 10 years had passed since I had been summoned to the Himalayas to appear in the first test. It was not considered necessary to call me in between. I used to see Gurudev in the same posture in which I had seen him for the first time, and he used to express his approval of what I was doing. Never did I feel that I was alone. Throughout these ten years, I felt that he was always with me. The struggle for freedom of India was continuing. The weather was fine. I again received a message after I had returned from a visit to Sabarmati Ashram in 1937 to reach the Himalayas. His orders could not be ignored. I informed my family members and started up for the pilgrimage the very next day. Motorable road was up to Uttarkashi only. Road construction work by beyond Uttarkashi was in progress. The route was known to me. Weather was not so cold as it was the last time. Katis were not desolate as pilgrims were coming and going. I found no difficulty this time. I had comparatively less luggage with me. Although I was not feeling as comfortable as at home, the inconveniences of the journey on the whole were not unbearable. I was not put to test like the ones to which I had been subjected to last time. The way up to Gangotri was well beaten and known. Only the track of 14 miles from Gangotri to Gomak changed every year due to melting of ice and breaking and falling of rocks. Small rivulets also sometimes change their course on account of falling of rocks. This route can be crossed by seeking guidance of some local persons or by using one's own hunch and intuition. In this manner, I reached Gomuk. I had to cover the rest of the journey with Gurudev's messenger. He was a shadowy person of the status of Virbhadra and was in his astral body. Gurudev used to give different assignments to him from time to time. Whenever I visited the Himalayas, he used to guide me from Gomuk to Nandanvan and back. By his help, I reached the destination in comparatively less time. There was no conversation between the two of us during these journeys together. As soon as I reached Nandanvan, Gurudev appeared before me in his astral body. My excitement and joy knew no bounds. My lips started trembling and the nose became wet with tears. I felt as if some separated vital organ of my own body had been miraculously restored to me and I had been made whole again. As a symbol of his deep love, he put his hand on my head. The formality of adoration and blessings was thus completed. Gurudev hinted to me about meeting the rishis again for seeking their guidance. I was overwhelmed. Almost all the rishis of Satyug live in this region of the inaccessible Himalayas in their astral bodies. I had met them here earlier. Although they do not need any specific place or objects for maintenance of their astral bodies, they have each, for their convenience, reserved a specific cave. In my first visit, I could simply bow before them and receive their blessings indirectly. This time, I had the privilege to listen to their messages. Gurudev took and introduced me to each one of them. Their forms appeared as condensed light. But when I became aware of and identified myself with my subtle body, I could see them in physical bodies in which they lived in Satyu. They were in the same forms in which worldly people see them in their imagination. Necessary formalities were observed. I prostrated on their feet. They touched my head. I was thrilled and was overwhelmed with joy. 
Coming to the main purpose, they said through Paravani, that the life-transforming missions that they had initiated for upliftment of humanity while in their physical bodies had become almost extinct. What remained was nothing but their ruins. They said that they are deeply pained when by their divine insight they perceive the present conditions. The entire region from Haridwar to Gangotri was the region of rishis in which they used to remain engrossed in Tapascharya. There were several ashrams here and there on the lines of Gurukul Aranyak of Rishi Jamadgani at Uttarkashi. All rishis were engaged in their own research work in Tapascharya. Devtas, gods, used to live where the rishis lived in their astral forms. At present, after the Ice Age, everything has changed and the missions of the rishis have almost become extinct. The Rishi said that some temples have no doubt been built here and there in Uttarakhand so that offerings in the form of money could be made to deities and the priests may earn their livelihood. But nobody asks for or gives an indication of who the Rishis were, when they lived in physical form and what they did. Thus, Rishi traditions have almost vanished. All the Rishis whom I was introduced repeated almost the same sad story. While bidding farewell, there were tears in their eyes. It appeared as if all of them were sad and afflicted with sorrow. What could I say? How could I do the missionary work which so many rishis used to do? I had no strength of my own to do it. I was moved when I saw them heavy laden with sadness. I thought, had God made me capable enough, I would not have remained mute and returned in this manner after seeing the rishis. Silence overtook me. I was stupefied. There were tears in my eyes. It pained me as if I had been stung by a scorpion to see so many rishis, who were all great and most capable, so unhappy, helpless, and concerned. Gurudev's soul and my soul were responding in synchronicity. We were looking at each other. His face was also so sad. Oh God, what an odd time has come when no successor of these rishis has been born. Their lineage has come to an end. Not a single purposeful activity which was initiated by the rishis is alive at present. There are crores of brahmanas and millions of saints. If amongst them there had been only ten or twenty true brahmanas or saints, they would have worked wonders like Buddha or Gandhi. I recall that in the past when the princess, daughter of the king of Kashi, shed tears and asked who will revive the Vedas, Kumaril Bhatt appeared and said, Please do not lament so long, as Kumaril is alive on earth. Kumaril Bhatt achieved what he undertook to do. But today there is no Pramana, no saint, and a rishi is almost out of question. Only hypocrites are seen screaming everywhere like wolves disguised as lambs. Such ideas filled my mind for the whole day after I had returned to my cave. Gurudev was reading my mind. He too was unhappy like me. Gurudev said, then do one thing. Let us again go to meet all the rishis. Tell them, if you sow direct, I may sow the seeds, but you will have to do the manuring and watering so that the crop might grow. At least by making such an offer, you will feel much relieved. Also ask them how to make a beginning and what will be its outline. Also tell them, I will definitely do something. If all of you are kind enough to shower your grace, there is bound to be greenery in this deserted graveyard. 
on Gurudev's command, I could even say that, irrespective of the consequences, I was prepared to jump into the fire. Gurudev could read my mind. This time, I saw his face beaming with joy, like Brahmakamar. Both of us were quiet but happy. We decided to meet again all the rishis whom we had met last night. When they saw us again, each one of them expressed satisfaction as well as amazement. I stood spellbound with folded hands and head bowed down before them. Gurudev conveyed my aspiration, resolve, and zeal to them indirectly in Parvani, and said, He does not lack life-transforming energy. He will do whatever he promises to do. Kindly indicate how the seeds of the task left unfinished by you are to be sown. If maneuvering, if manuring, watering, etc. is done by us, his efforts will not be in vain. Thereafter, Gurudev invited them all to attend in astral bodies, the Purnausi of Sahastra Kundi Gayatri Yagya, which was to be performed at Madura on the completion of Gayatri Mahapurusha Charanas in the year 1958, and pointing towards me said, He is a monkey but Hanuman, a bear but Jambant, a vulture but Jatayu. Kindly direct him and rest assured that what has been left unfinished will be completed and the sapling will grow up into a huge tree. He further said, why should we be disappointed? Why should we not rely on him when he had discharged with a great devotion responsibilities which were entrusted to him during his past births? This talk was going on with one of the rishis, but hardly did it take a moment for this invitation to reach them all, and they gathered together. Disappointment disappeared. Hope was revived, and future program was chalked out. It was resolved that the seedlings of divine tasks that the rishis had been doing be sown again in a field, a nursery of fragrant flowers of divine aims and purposes, be nurtured and then transplanted all over the globe so that the world blooms again with divine fragrance. This was the scheme of building Shantikunj, which was to be undertaken after conclusion of my stay at Madura. The schemes of building Gayatri Nagar and raising the structure of Brahma Varcha's Shod Shanchant Research Institute were also explained in detail. Each and every word which I was told was engraved on my mental canvas, and I decided that soon after completion of 24 Gayatri Purusha Charanas of 24 lakhs each, I would prepare an outline of this work. It was impossible that a person who was a recipient of Gurudev's protection and patronage could ever be unsuccessful. I stayed for a day more, explaining in detail about the Purna Aoti of Purusha Charanas Gurudev said, I have been closely observing all the events and activities of the past few years of your life, and rectifying the lapses, if any. I called you this time to explain to you the plans for the future. There is not much time now left for the completion of your Purusha Charanas. Go to Madura, complete them, and start the second phase of your life from Madura. Next to Prayag, Madura is a central place in the country. It is convenient from the point of view of communication. After independence, your political activities will be over, but the work towards the fulfillment of your life's primary mission will continue. Political restructuring is bound to be there. Government will look after the economic restructuring and other allied matters, but three more transformations will have to be initiated through the agency of moral and spiritual movements. The country became enslaved and weak, not because there was paucity of brave persons who could defeat the aggressors. Internal strife and weakness were responsible for the downfall and degeneration of the country. 
Others had only taken advantage of these shortcomings. Moral, intellectual, and social transformations are to be accomplished. For this, it is necessary to gather around you a band of delighted and awakened persons and to explain to them the highlights of the work to be done. So, leave your village and go to Madura. Hire a small house there and publish a monthly magazine and also publish material relating to these three kinds of transformations. In due course, you have to build a grand Gayatri temple near Madura, in the land where Durvasa Rishi had performed sadhana, and make arrangements for the board and lodging of your colleagues. Then you have to perform a Maha Yagya, after the completion of 24 Maha Purusha Charanas by the way of Purna Ahuti. It has been the tradition in Anusthans to perform Yagya along with the Jap. After completion of 24 Anusthans, each of 24 lakhs of Jap, you have to celebrate a Maha Yagya in a Yagya Sala compromising of 1000 Kuns and offering 24 lakh Ahutis. On that occasion, foundations of a huge organization will be laid which will initiate the work of a mass awakening through the agency of moral and spiritual movements. This is the first phase of the completion of Anushtan. After discharging this responsibility, you have to go to Sapta Sarovar Haridwar, live there and complete the work of revival of Rishi traditions for which you have given your word to the Rishis. Gurudev explained in detail how the work at Madura was to be done. He also indicated the outline of the work of translation of ancient scriptures, their publication and publicity, and setting up of an organization of Gayatri Parivar. I had assumed Gurudev in my very first meeting with him that nothing would be left undone to carry out his directions. How were the needs of money and manpower to be met for the accomplishment of so huge a task? Gurudev read my mind laughed and said, do not worry about these material and human resources. Start sowing whatever you possess. Its harvest will be hundredfold. All the tasks which have been entrusted to you will be fulfilled. Gurudev himself indicated to me what I possessed, how and when it was to be sown, and how and when it would be yield the richest. I kept everything which Gurudev said firmly in my mind. There was no question of forgetting it. How could a soldier forget the command of his general? I could not neglect or disregard what I was asked to do. Our interaction concluded. This time I was directed to stay in the Himalayas only for six months. All necessary arrangements were made for my stay. Gurudev's Virbhadra left me at Gomuk. I reached the indicated destination and stayed there for six months. When I returned home, my health was much, much better. My happiness and earnestness had increased. It was reflected on my face. People started saying that there was some haven of happiness and comfort in the Himalayas to which I periodically retired and from which I had returned every time far more healthier and happy. I now prepared to ship to Madura. I had visited Madura once but did not know anybody there. There was great scarcity of houses in those days at Madura. I went in search of a small house suitable for the publication of Akanjyoti. After considerable search, I found a house in Ghiamundi which was lying vacant for quite a long time. The landlady was an old woman. When I asked about the rent, she said it was 15 rupees per month. She handed over the key of the house to me. I went inside and found that in all there, there were 15 rooms in it. Although the house was in dilapidated condition, it was not costly from my point of view. 
I paid one month's rent in advance. The landlady was extremely happy. I went to my village, brought my family and luggage, and started living in it. There was some whispering in the whole locality, as if my decision to live in this house was a matter of astonishment. On inquiry, I was told this was a house haunted by ghosts. Whosoever had come to live in it had suffered loss of life and property, and nobody could stay here long. I was told that being an outsider, I had been befooled, because nobody could have rented out such a huge three-storied house having 15 rooms for a paltry monthly rent of rupees 15. I was warned that I would be harmed. I decided to continue living in that house because so cheap, spacious, and useful accommodation could not be had elsewhere. It turned out to be true that the house was haunted by evil spirits. There was tumult and turmoil throughout the first night on the roof of the house, and shrieking sounds of jesting, wagging, weeping, and fighting were heard. There was no electricity in the house. I took a lantern and went up and saw some shadowy male and female figures running away. I could not meet them. They did not harm me. This continued for about ten days. One night, I went up at about 1 a.m. with a lantern in my hand and asked the shadowy figures to stop. They stopped. I told them, you've been living in this house for quite a long time. Let us come to a gentlemanly compromise. You may live in seven rooms on the top floor, and we will stay in the remaining eight rooms. Thus, you will not be inconvenienced. We will also not be bothered. Nobody replied, although they remained standing. From the next day, everything changed. On my part, I complied with the terms of the compromise. They also appeared to be agreeable to the terms. Sounds of some movements on the roof were no doubt heard sometimes, but there was no mischief or disturbance which could upset our sleep frighten the children, or cause any obstruction in the work. I got the damaged portion of the house repaired at my cost. Publication of Akanjyoti was again started from this house. I started corresponding with Parijans and associated from here. In the first year itself, about 2,000 subscribers were enrolled. I used to write letters to them and invited them for personal contacts. I used to study while going for a walk for two hours daily. My understand continued in my small room of worship. In place of political work relating to the Indian National Congress, I speeded up my writing work. My pen started moving in writing books and articles for Akanjyoti and translating ancient sacred Sanskrit text for educating the masses through the medium of moral and spiritual instruction. Akanjyoti was printed in my own hand-operated press. This routine went on, but I was worried throughout how money and manpower would be arranged to accomplish the huge task of publication, installation of the press, building Gayatri Tapobhumi, and performing a huge yagya, which had not been performed since after the Mahabharata. For this, the message of Gurudev, sow and reap, used to appear before my open eyes often. This message was now to be materialized in the field of society. I had to become a true Brahmana, devoid of all possessions, a parigrahi. My mind started constantly visualizing the outline for the achievement of this noble aim. End of chapter 5. Jai Gurudev.